we're developing for next semester, in fact, we're, de we're developing text-based adventure games that use GPTs to, it uses GPTs to, to run the text-based adventure game and to practice very basic rhetorical skills, right? So it kind of, it allows students like, hey, you know, instead of just saying like, you know, um, you know, after learning about, you know, logos, pathos, and ethos, right? These, these, these persuasive appeals, instead of, instead of just writing, you know, these, these rote uh, paragraphs in response to prompts that I give every semester, um, instead, we're going to have GP, uh, we're going to have uh, uh, the GPT, we're going to create a script that has the GPT um, ask the student what adventure they want to take. Do you want to like, you know, are, are you, do you want to um, um, negotiate for a salary increase? Do you want to uh, ask your romantic partner, um, you know, uh, or do you want to try to get your romantic partner to go on this trip or something else, right? And then the, and then um, part of this process, part of the game is using different appeals and, and built into the, the chatbot experience or the the game is um providing critical feedback like you know it's, so so if, if the if the experience or if the the student's paragraph or dialogue with the the simulated you know partner or the simulated boss um is not convincing according to certain criteria that we lay out within the within the within the within the fine tuning process um then they don't get what they want Right. But but if it is convincing, then then they do get a bump and they can actually push the adventure further. Okay, hi everyone, my name is Balash Kegel and this is the iScientist podcast where we explore artificial intelligence, the body and the soul. And this time it's my great, great pleasure to host uh, Joa Glad, who is an assistant professor and chair of the Department of Integrated Studies at the College of Western Idaho. And so you are teaching English literature and writing and you're very, very active on uh, using the most modern tools like GPT for both writing and also for teaching writing and also even for teaching using AI for writing. So we are sort of like Twitter buddies. We like, you know, we follow each other and pay attention to each other tweets and like them. So that's how we met. And basically the last, uh, last thing that really triggered me to contact you was that you 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 did you you wrote something about uh, John Verbecki's uh, video essay on AI, which I really like and I think it should uh, receive more attention and I I love to discuss it with anybody who who is interested in that. So how are you today, Joel? Thanks, Blash. Uh, great. Yeah. No, I I that's um doing well and yeah. Thanks for the introduction and yes, it's been. Uh, um, I do, I, I work quite a bit with these, with these emerging tools, um, that are incorporating LLMs, large language models, um, and other forms of AI. And so it's been interesting to, um, yeah, to kind of see how quickly things have been changing in the past, in the past year and a half. Um, and yeah, and then the more recently just was getting into, I, you know, what I think the first time I heard of John Vervecki, 
was and I, I like I don't know how much uh, we, how much we'll talk about him specifically, but the first time I heard of him was I think when Tim Ferriss interviewed mm-hmm. John Rovecki. I don't know. Do you know who Tim Ferriss is? Yes, yeah. yes, of course. Yeah. Yeah, so so he interviewed him. Uh, I don't know how many months ago, um, a few to several. But uh, I remember listening to that. I think I was working out and listening to um, <laughs> that podcast, and I really liked his kind of liked his conceptual approach um, to um, to ethics and thinking about you know modern life and you know kind of dove in when it, you know watched the the meaning crisis series um most of it and then just more recently kind of his work on the intersection of cognitive psychology and 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 machine learning and ai and i've found that kind of i think helpful in some ways as a as a kind of a framework for thinking about the i think the struggles that i see with some of my students as they kind of dip into these tools and it just and as as an educator when i introduce these tools um they were surprising like um I guess surprising, surprisingly, there's concepts from Verveki that are are kind of helpful for keeping in mind. Just I think it's I, I can provide a better experience if I kind of um, go back to some of these basic things. So, yeah, amazing, amazing. Yeah, he was a lighthouse for me. So actually, I I, I use him for guide. Like he he's a map. Basically, what he give, gives me is a is a is a complex, but it's a map. On which I can place a lot of things, so I really like his stuff, including his work on on how to align AI. And we'll talk about that later, maybe. I want to to cover three three topics, and all all the three are pretty broad. So let's see how it goes. First of all, so I'm an engineer. I'm an AI researcher. Started in the '90s. My last encounter with formal writing education was in high school. We we never learned technical writing. I was in an engineering school, and but I write a lot, and I'm very much interested in writing, and learning writing, learning to write better. So that would be the first topic. Is like how did you get to this, uh, uh, both both into writing and analysis of of text, and then we can go into to how to use AI. What is the interaction between these AI writing tools? writing itself and writing education. And the third one is we can cover a little bit of uh, what we like about uh, John Verwecki. So my first question would be, so how did you end up uh, teaching literature and writing? How did, what did attract to you to this uh, profession? Yeah, so I, I um, yeah, that's a good question. So I, I let's see, I, when I, I grew up with a, just my background just growing up, my, my mom was, um, English teacher in, in high school, and she was kind of big on um, just having a foundation. And that, I guess more 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 broadly speaking, kind of the liberal arts tradition, you know, uh, arts and humanities. Um, that yeah, just kind of being grounded in that. And so I kind of grew with that as as my as my background. And then I went to went to university, um, and it's called Wake Forest University in North Carolina, and ended up uh, first on a, on a pre-med track, but then I kind of, after taking a few courses in, in literature and philosophy, I kind of pivoted uh, pretty pretty quickly and got more into those areas. So kind of like philosophy and, and literature have always been coupled for me. Um, but I think uh, I started to notice when I was working on like my, my honors thesis in, in, in undergrad, that uh, 
as I would kind of blend, you know, those, these conceptual frameworks from philosophy and into how I analyze literature, that uh, it would like the my audience would have like a big, it, it, would, it would have like a noticeable impact on my audience. They would be, they would uh, uh, see things differently. And I kind of got, you know, it was, it was well, re well received. And so it just kind of seemed something that, that, um, uh, felt more natural to me to kind of make that blend and 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 think about literature in those ways. And so from there, I just went to started applying to grad schools. I got my PhD in literary studies from University of Wisconsin at Madison, where um, I focused on American literature. And uh, my dissertation was about kind of the intersection of of like early uh, like proto-demography in the United States. So like, you know, getting general estimates of the population and then mapping those onto these more um, uh, uh, narrative tropes about what the, what, what the significance of these population increases, right? And so there's kind of like a theological dimension to these things. Um, and and so the the dissertation kind of tracked that and kind of made an argument about, about um, about how to think about these horizontal, there's like a horizontal dimension and a vertical dimension to these to these tropes. Um, and then from from the early modern period, so like the 16th century, or sorry, the early 17th century up through the mid 19th century, um, all the way up to Thoreau and and uh, James Fenimore Cooper. So uh, yeah, so I'm in, so I've always had this you know kind of um, I think interest in the combination of literature and philosophical concepts, how they can come together in my writing. And uh, and then after my after defending my dissertation, um, or while actually while finishing up my dissertation, I kind of was just felt exhausted by research writing. Uh, and just kind of the, the state of uh, uh, being a professor in American universities today, I, I, I don't know how different it is from, um, tenure positions in in Europe, uh, France or Hungary, and you know I, I want to know, but um, in the United States, like you have to publish a fair a fair amount of research writing in in the degree that I held, and I was just kind of exhausted by that approach. I didn't find it all that you know I found it less interesting than just thinking more uh, uh, more philosophically about some of these texts and. Um, with my background, the most natural, like, you know, I guess workplace is to uh, just begin teaching writing courses, right? So it kind of like leveraged my degree to begin teaching writing courses. Um, we call them first year writing at America, at, uh, in United States uh, universities. And so I teach these first year writing courses um, for a while, uh, teach, yeah, research writing, you know, just intro to writing. And, and out of that, just kind of got more into, um, uh, rhetorical concepts and how they're important for just a foundation and, and for advanced writing and uh, started to, uh, I guess, pick up tools um, that I could leverage to help students uh, learn how to practice, you know, persuasive appeals and things like this. So, so it was kind of very basic, like the, the kinds of teaching that I started at was was very basic, first year writing, and we would work on, you know, just simple rhetorical choices and how they would how you could practice them in, in essay writing, right? Um, and that gave, gave me an opportunity to, to figure out how to leverage certain tools, certain you know, emerging technologies um, to benefit my students, many of whom 
I mean, this is an open access institution that I work at. And so that means like, you know, anyone can apply here. You don't have a, you don't need certain marks. Uh, if you apply, then you'll basically get accepted. And so a lot of my students are, are um, from semi-rural areas. Um, they do not have a lot of privilege. Uh, a significant percentage are first year, like, like they're the first person in their family to get to college. Yeah. So, so, I mean, that's, that's kind of the story up until I would say the pandemic 2020 uh, uh was is kind of a, i think marks a big shift in in how writing is taught um in in higher ed uh because of the shift towards asynchronous formats online formats right there's kind of this big shift and um and suddenly instructors you know faculty at, at uh, all these uh institutions needed to be able to like recreate their lesson plans and uh, deliver instruction online over Zoom, right? Um, and you had to figure out what, what kind of tools were were like best fit for for this new modality. And we had been doing, I mean, online had, had been uh, like, you know, faculty had been trained in online well before this. Most people in my institution would have certifications and teaching online, things like that. But uh, it kind of 2020 forced us to to treat this as our primary modality, right? For for at least a little bit, for a few semesters, um, and uh, you saw like this explosion in edtech tools, right? And so, and um, you know, whereas before, I think online at my institution and and many others was kind of like um, not niche, but uh, maybe it was considered as. Um, uh, you know, inferior in some ways to in-person education. And, and to some degree, it, it still is. It's like, oh, it's not as good. If you can't be there in person, take an online course. But I think during 2020, it's like, hey, this is all we have, right? So what technologies do we need to make sure that this works quite well? And so they kind of accelerated things. Um, and and uh, certain faculty, including myself, kind of dipped more into certain kinds of teaching and then certain tools that uh, were suitable for this new modality, right? Or at least like, hey, this is our primary modality. You know, if, if the majority of our degrees and courses are now fully online, right? Um, how do we adapt to this and what tools are gonna be best for, for students uh, who need, who require a lot of support? And um, so for me, what that looked like is, you know, I began, began getting more into open education resources, open education uh, practices. Um, uh, because so open education, OER, uh, it, it you know a, a big a big part of this is developing textbooks by faculty that are made freely available to students, right? And we can share these, we can re remix them, we can distribute them freely, right? Um, and so the benefit of OER is you can get these to students, you know, very quickly, uh, at no cost to them. There are institutional costs, you know, and it requires a lot of labor, but a new no cost to the student, and it's online. Um, and you coupled with this is the ability to share pedagogy like you know like hey this is what i this is how i present the material there's kind of this robust framework that is um that is created around these materials where it becomes you know you start to share ideas faster as faculty right what i would be interested in a little bit is um why do we write and why do we learn to write and who who are you teaching so you mentioned a little bit that that this is a an open college, so you don't need an entrance exam or marks. Uh, mm -hmm. So what are your students 
going to use writing for? Why are they yeah. signing up for the writing course? And what, why do we write, you know, in general, what are the different objectives? Yeah, no, that's a great question. So like, uh, and I think that the, the context of this is the institution that I teach at is important because students, when they, when they come into uh, my classroom, um, they like, they're just thinking about a job. They're like, hey, I want to get a job, right? And some, like, you know, a certain amount of students do get transfer degrees and they'll transfer on to, an, to uh, another institution and get their bachelor's or go into grad school. But uh, the majority of them are just looking to, to, to get into the workplace as fast as possible. And so, and this is very different from the, from the you know, from the institution that I went to for undergrad and certainly grad school. And so what I, what I thought I wanted out of writing at, you know, when I was, when I was in their position is not, is not what they're thinking, right? And it's kind of, it's taken me a while to kind of adjust to that, but I think it's really helpful because um, all my teaching and, and how we, how we think about, you know, making simple rhetorical choices, you know, for them, it's like, Hey, how does this, how does this transfer? How does this get me a job? Right. Or like, you know, what is this, how's this going to pay off? And, and maybe not the workplace, but when I go home or when I, when I hang out with my friends or something like that. Right. Um, I mean, a lot of these students are working increasingly. So that's the case in education. Right. Um, but at the same time, so like the, it needs to be, it needs to have a high impact very quickly. The, that needs to be very obvious. Um, and so like, you know, in Verveke's language, like the, 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 it needs to be highly relevant, right? And so how we think about them in writing programs is, is in terms of context. It needs to be highly contextual and there needs to be a lot of transfer, right? But at the same time, uh, something that we work on quite a bit is is voice. And, and this is kind of strangely related. This is strangely, I think, sometimes orthogonal to um, the like, hey, I want, I just want to get a job, teach me the basics so I know how to make an impact beyond that. This is not, this is not terribly important. Uh, and so we're kind of like sneaking in in some ways, we're kind of sneaking in the, the emphasis on voice and writing as thinking and writing as expression. And these don't like, these aren't, these aren't immediately, these aren't um, as immediately appealing, right? They sound more abstract and they sound more, uh, uh, I guess fluffier to students, uh, but once you once you hook them with like, hey, here's the you know workplace benefits. Once you hook them and you kind of uh, you begin practicing, you know, style and voice. Um, I think um, they start to experience language as uh, as flow in ways that they did it before, and right, and so it becomes something else. And I think this is true for. For for me certainly, but I, but I think for a lot of people is that is that there are multiple dimensions to writing, and um, if if writing is becomes someone's you know profession, um, or let's say someone write, is writing just for like personal reasons, like hey, I just want to write because I want to you know think through thoughts, et cetera, et cetera. There comes a point where it crosses over into writing for someone else writing for the workplace, you know, like there's a utility to it and they have to learn certain, they have to learn that dimension as well. Uh, and, and then conversely, like someone who is writing, just they, they view it as like, you know, this is just purely technical. It's just for my job. But then it crosses over at certain points into like, oh, hey, I'm actually, um, this is actually enjoyable. Like, I feel like I'm in this email that I'm crafting, I'm kind of expressing myself in some ways. And I see how like, you know, just kind of turn that over to a, a chat bot 
you know, maybe sometimes it's going to be helpful, but other times like, no, actually I want to take control and, uh, and kind of enter the zone of writing. Right. Um, yeah. So it's kind of, so it's hard to, I think, um, it, it's hard to sell writing in, in for, for, for my students as, you know, either like, Hey, this is, this is all going to be about self-expression and voice. Like that's not enough, but also it's kind of, you know, stultifying or deadening to say like, Hey, this is just going to get you a job. Right. Cause it's, it's always, it's always going to be, you know, more than that. Right. Yes. Yes. And I, I guess, uh, voice is what will make the difference in this world where we have GPT. Like my partner was saying, she has to write, uh, sort of like marketing mails, but for, for her own, for her own course on the internet. And she's tried GPT, but it's not, it's not my words, you know? And I have the same feeling sometimes when I mm. use GPT to edit my stuff, because I'm not a, English is my not, is not my first language. So often I just use it for grammatical things and style. And what comes out, it's like, you know, I, I almost like feel it's a GPT. GPT starts to have its own voice in a certain yeah. sense, like you can recognize it. And I, I even got caught. I was not pretending not using GPT, but I had, uh, you know, I have two blogs. One is on Medium, where I, I write more technical stuff. And the Medium, you can you can send your blog to a sort of editing uh, mm -hmm. thing. I don't know if I can call it journal, but it's like grouping blogs together and it goes under their, their label. And they rejected it because they're, well, I don't know which tool said that I was using GPT too much. Really? You think I was writing about GPT hallucinations? That's fascinating. <laughs> yes. So, well, I mean, so uh, we notice. I mean, there's there's a lot that there's a lot in there that that I can respond to, but we do notice that um, we call them ESL students. English, you know, as a second English as a second language. We notice that e ESL students get flagged more um, by these AI detectors than um than you know native english uh, speaking students oh, when they so write their own stuff because they're because using they tools use it more. Ah. Be well um because in some cases they're using tools like quillbot or grammarly to help clean up their their syntax and uh just kind of like do you know um yeah spell check but also clean like quillbot uses um, at least it was based, it was around like 2018, I think is when it was started, but it was based just on, on machine learning, but not LLMs. Right. Um, and so it wasn't rewriting like, like, it, like ChatGPT would. Right. Um, and so it, it's partly that, but it's also partly how ESL students write, um, that it gets flagged more as like, oh, this is machine, not, not, not human. Right, so there is some kind of inequity there, inequity in how ESL students get flagged versus uh, native English speaking students, right? Um, but yeah, so like it's it's fascinating to think about like what kind of does G, uh, does does ChatGPT or do GPTs have a voice, right? Uh, it, it, and again, that's uh, it, you know that's a kind of like a figure of speech is how is how we're kind of throwing <laughs> that around, right? It's like I would say um, yes, yes, but if you can recognize it, it means that they it, there's some there is an attribute which is shared between two texts of coming out of GPT, and it's somehow like probably like mm -hmm. if, if you want the, the ontology of it, it's probably a like 
everybody's voice together that's yeah on the internet or something like that i don't know well and so this uh it's a part of how i've been trying to like put put think about this like more um I think at a higher level, but also, so like I can, I can think of, the, of this as a higher level. And so someone like John Ravecki can help with that, I think, and thinking about um, about the importance again of, of, um, of, of, of relevance um, and relevance realization as a way that we approach language, right? In the, in, in the absence of that, um, maybe that's what we mean by sounding more machinic. It's like, it's like, oh, this is just a, there's not, there's not, a, this is not twisted in a way that we would expect a human to twist things, right? And I'm, I'm speaking kind of metaphorically here, but I think that's it, right? There's some kind of like twisting manipulation that goes on, we call that style. Um, uh, and we can we can like, it, we can use like GPT-0 um, and 0GPT and Turnitin, they, they, they try to come up with, the, come up with these uh, AI detectors that will try to quantify like oh this is human versus versus ai right but it's very hard i think it's not enough to quantify it. you also have to have to have a philosophical grasp of what's going on right but the, but the markers they use are things like lexical lexical complexity right so so and i've had students i i've used uh this 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 one marker lexical complexity as a way for students to think about like, hey, how do we how do we make your voice more robust, right? And so I'm like, hey, okay, these AI, AI detectors, since they use like a lexical complexity as one of the things they're looking for, one of the primary things they're looking for, um, uh, we, we develop lesson plans where it's like, hey, let's work on this. Let's use this as an opportunity to um, uh, write more interesting ways and figure out what it would look like for us to to increase our lexical complexity, right? So things like um, uh, creating similes and and writing, you know, to, uh, using figures of speech in in our in our in a paragraph or in a sentence. Um, when we do this, when we use a simile to um, to to illustrate a more abstract idea, what right? is what is a simile? A simile. So using like or as. You know, so so saying like a you know the the um like her eyes were as blue as the sky, right? That's a kind of a lame okay. simile. Yeah, yeah, okay, right. <laughs> so so this would be um, using similes. The more we sprinkle our language with things like similes and and more figurative language, um, not only does it does it create more interesting writing, but I think something more psychological go more or sorry something more fundamental is going on the similes we tend to draw on um like yeah this when i say like horizon is blue as the sky that's kind of cheesy it's very lame why because it's it's something that um like anyone would say but when we're use normally when we use metaphors and similes in our language we actually are 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 drawing on these unconscious reservoirs of 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 um of tropes and images and things that are based on our experience and things that are based on our worldviews and our belief systems, right? Like this, all all of this bubbles up as our lexical complexity, right? That's I mean, it kind of is. So I think like this is, um, you know, for me, this this um, the Vervakian concept here would be uh, an, an embeddedness and um, like the what's what's the so you have the four E's. Of Cogside, this would be, uh, yeah, this would be embeddedness, right? It's like the extent to which humans are embedded, 
they have experiences. Those experience, those experiences often, you know, just memories. There's these core memories that are attached to this, and these these bubble up in our um, when we're writing, and they they bubble up in in how complex our language is, right? And so it's really you know in the classroom, and then as 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 you all know, right? When you're writing, and I, and I think I was reading through your your Substack articles and I notice how you're kind of drawing yeah you're kind of like you know writing as expression you're kind of interweaving these more general philosophical concepts with you know this what happened in 2020 or 2021 and your your relationships or how you picked up jujitsu right and it uh, just kind of becomes interwoven with um with 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 our language with the words we use right does yes, that make yes. sense? So, just, yeah. And uh, yeah. absolutely, yes. So it's not it's not just a set of propositions. Some say even that language itself is was born through metaphoric thinking. Every word is a metaphor in a certain sense that was used to mean something literal a long time ago. Yeah. Like understand, standing under. Why does it mean that we understand? You know, it's like you can go and. I think it was Owen Barfield who had even books on this, like how you can use language mm. for 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 an archaeology of of thoughts of humanity. I think his his famous example is pneuma in Greek, which means wind and soul at the same time mm. at the same time, and probably at a certain po point in history, those two things really meant the same thing. For us, it's metaphoric now, but, but at know that, that time it was the same. So this is how metaphors created language. And I know that um, uh, Rebecca mentions Barfield, I, I believe, in in the Mini Crisis, one of the episodes. I'm not familiar with Barfield's uh, work. Does he? Does he? So he's is he going back to like ancient Greek thought and saying like, hey, this is how they thought of language as being birthed in metaphor, or is he just developing this based on? Is I didn't system? treat him directly, but I talked to Mark Vernon, who is a monography on him, uh, The Secret History of Christianity. And uh, he develops this idea there that uh, the way that the sort of like the collective soul grew up historically, you can catch those points in, in language if you analyze the words. And that the, the interesting thing for me in this and with respect to what you were saying is that we are constantly creating those things, even when we don't think about it. So there are metaphors and, and maybe this is where, you know, English as a second language kicks in because I saw it so many times that I, I literally translate something from Hungarian to English and it sounds poetic. Because yeah. in Hungarian, in Hungarian, that was that's like a, a common metaphor we use for something or a way we express something used to be a metaphor like understand. If I if I if I say understand in Hungarian literally, it's it sounds funny, and makes you think at the same time. And if I tell that it means understand, which for which we, in Hungarian we have a verb which I don't really have a etymology of it then it really creates sort of like a, a thought okay that means you are really supporting it the thought that's what it means understanding and it's it's actually a very interesting example exactly understanding because there's a lot of debate on ai 
whether they understand or not and what does it mean to understand it's one of those examples where ai becomes a mirror in the sense that you wouldn't ask this question unless we had gpt unless we had this some yeah. other tool where it's like, sort of like pantomime understanding and that tool creates the question what does it really mean understanding so you can get into philosophy because of this i, mm -hmm. I love this and uh, so so we can actually go into the, the the ai thing because i really love the fact that you know your spirit that you instead of like you know pushing it back you are uh, taking it on and trying to, to work with it and teach it so it's it's, it's beautiful and i i was still making a lot of circles so as i let you if you had any thoughts on this i let you speak well so we can i i guess i can pick up where with, with the same conversation like you um um so one of the questions with with um so I, I guess I'll think I'll think very specifically about like how I'm using this tool and then we can kind of expand from there. But like, so you're talking about um, how using language, there's always this metaphorical component. Um, and uh, it's really fascinating to see how someone for whom English is not the primary language when they're kind of like, you know, transliterating. Uh, the primary language into English, then the metaphors kind of come to the surface. It's like, oh, hey, I never realized I was a figure of speech or that was, you know, that was uh, behind that is something um, is something else. And it just over time became uh, this more abstract idea. Right. And that's that's the phrase that I'm actually using. Right. Like to think, to understand, you know, even these most abstract com uh, uh, concepts, are, you know, are, are, are highly uh concrete at their core in some ways, but they've just been kind of like, you know, they've, they've been transformed. Um, but uh, so it's interesting how those come to the surface, but also like in the classroom, um, it's, if we're trying to make these, if we're trying to develop lesson plans, then what we're starting to do is create, you know, habits and habits, you know, teaching habits is all about, um, is all about routine and it's about repetition and this is where machines actually do play a role right and so this is this is how you know this is why it's not a matter of always pushing things away or uh, risk mitigation it's not always about risk mitigation sometimes it's about okay um these 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 new tools um the ability to to enter a script that's how i kind of use some some forms of uh, prompt engineering they're almost like scripts like a, like a movie script or a, or like a a script within a play you know you're kind of like saying like hey this is this is how we're going to play things out right but 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 creating a lesson plan where like i plug a script into into um uh chat gpt and i'll say something like hey you're you know you're uh um uh you're a, a professor of first year writing you're an expert in teaching um uh uh you know uh writing style um you know in in this lesson plan you're going to um you're going to define um lexical complexity and then you're going to explain how similes play a role in that and then you're going to prompt the student um to create their own simile and then you're going to provide feedback in this manner so you can create a script around this to try to um you're to try to help the student practice something that can be that can help them write in a more human manner right so it kind of seems 
uh paradoxical but it's but it's not really a paradox it's just like anything that's routine anything that's that's very basic like a very basic skill like this um that's just a matter of like hey you gotta you just gotta do it again and again and again um you know ChatGPT and other gbt uh uh platforms can do this pretty well right so it's just figuring out like at what point can we leverage these tools um to it, within the learning process in ways that do not inhibit active learning right so th so that's one way that i've been kind of thinking through bringing bringing these into the classroom um yeah so that's not that's not like thinking more generally about about ai but i think that kind of illustrates how um these these tools aren't always substitutes for being human or writing in more human ways in some ways we can kind of use these to, to do the opposite right it's kind of you know it can be dialectical or probably is dialectical to some extent mm -hmm. but yeah i was i was bringing this up in this way you know complementing on your spirit because i from a lot of people in education the first reaction was panic and that's probably related to the mechanization of education in a certain sense that uh, the way we teach students in a certain style uh, allows them to replace you know their whatever tests they are given to using using gpt so that's that's again sort of like a mirror in the sense that this tells you that the way you teach the student is probably for another age where <laughs> it had to be the student had to become a clog in society so this is why i was saying like so so may, maybe a question there would be when you teach students to write how do you examine them what are the ways to see that they learned to write and they learn to write in a way that will be useful for them. Yeah, so uh, no, no, you're right. This is, um, there is a fair amount of anxiety around these tools and, and how they're kind of reshaping education or questions like, are they reshaping education? And then if we bring them into the classroom, if we bring them into our lesson plans, if we say like, hey, students, it's okay to use this to like write an essay, right? Um, then what happens to uh, all of the teaching methods that we've developed in the process? Like, where, where do those go? Uh, because you can't, and, and that's, this the heart of the question is what you just asked is how do you assess learning, right? And so that's kind of a question that's asked again and again. And you'll see this on on uh, on X, you know, formerly known as Twitter. Um, that this is what a lot of us are trying to figure it out is like post you know ChatGPT November you know 2022 um how do you assess learning um and so like i think what's why tools like ChatGPT became such a threat and you already mentioned this is be, is because uh, a lot of a lot of education is very mechanized already and so this just kind of like fills in the gap. It's like, oh, hey, here's a rote, you know, here's a rote prompt that we give every semester, right? We and we, it's prescriptive, right? We know exactly what we want from the student. We're pretty close to what it should look like. I mean, that's how assessment normally works or has traditionally worked. Um, and that's exactly what uh, LLMs are really, really good at. It's like they've been trained on this stuff, right? You give them, they've been trained on all these exams, 
And so they know how to how to autocomplete in a way. But also it's it's even more of a threat because when they autocomplete, it's not consistent. It's always different. And so you can't say like, oh yeah, of course you got it from this play. It's not plagiarism, right? Um, and so it is a threat in that sense. And so um and so like how do you assess? I mean, this is this is kind of a, a big problem right now, is how do you assess if you assume that students are using these tools when they're not in the classroom. And increasingly, this is kind of the post-COVID, um, I guess we would say the post-COVID factor or exigency, um, you know, the backgrounds like, hey, this is this is not gonna go away. Uh, uh, the, the other big factor is that increasingly a lot of education is online, which makes it, which makes this even easier, right? Mm -hmm. Students are not in the classroom, so you can't, you can't police them. Right. So, so like there's going to be a, there's, there's this looming gulf between educational experiences that are in person that can be controlled, uh, where students can be monitored and they can, they have to do things like on command. They have to show, like they have to tie their writing to their person, you know? Um, there's a gulf between that and then where much of higher ed is going. You know, like I'm just going to get a certification in this area and then go on to do something. Um, but a lot of these problems can be uh, GPT, you know, chat GPT, right? So how do you assess learning when that happens? Uh, so formally, before, you know, pre-LLMs, uh, we would assess, you know, in a writing course, we would assess through like a research essay, you know, like, hey, write, you know, um, 750 to 1,000 words, write, you know, six to six to eight pages, uh, about an uh, an argument uh, about this topic or a topic of your choosing, you need to have X amount of sources, um, you know, and you know, most of those need to be scholarly, et cetera, et cetera, right? And so, you're, and so students need to learn how to write introductions, how to support arguments with evidence and reasoning. They need to know how to like um, identify what a good source is, what a credible source is, right? These are important skills, and they're they're lifelong skills, right? Um, but you can simulate all of that now with a with a chatbot, right? So how do you assess whether or not the student actually learned something versus simulated? That's 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 the problem. Exactly. So how do you do that? Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, that's a good question. Uh, there's a, there's a big split over how to. Uh, uh, right now, there's kind of a there's a. It seems like there are a lot of different paths being explored. Um, some and some faculty will will ban the tool and they'll write into their syllabus a course policy that says for any assignment in this course you cannot use uh llm such as ChatGPT. you cannot use ai um and and in many institutions now you'll find in the academic integrity policy that a student cannot submit work um, as their own if it's been um assisted by ai right that's that's actually yeah so that's you'll see that in an academic integrity policies so this is kind of a big deal uh but the language the the key language is here is what does it mean to be assisted by ai exactly. right when you submit something so this is i mean that's like that's a big question and and so at the course level faculty have to decide for themselves what that means and so they they write these these policies into the syllabus and some are banning um, others are saying like, okay, you, you, you can use it up to a certain extent, or you can use it for certain assignments, but not for others, or you can use it, but you must acknowledge it. Um, and 
if the problem that you run into is that if you want to ban it, then you need to, you'll probably need to use tools. We call it uh, one one major tool in, in the United States that that colleges use is called Honor Lock, and so this is for online courses. And so whenever you complete an assessment um, through Honor Lock, it'll record your screen. It'll record the student. They have to like show their phone. They have to show them walking away from the computer with their phone, right? Um, so they they are, are restricted to one tab and the camera can see everything and as well as what's on the screen. And so if you use that, you know, there might be ways to game this. Um, some students try, but like it does kind of lock things down. You could use that in theory for every single assignment in theory, right? So you could, you could go that route. Like, okay, we're going to have regular exams throughout the course. We're always going to use, we're always going to monitor what's going on to make sure that the student is actively learning. That is, that is a solution, but it raises, um, it raises a few ethical concerns, uh, especially around surveillance, right? Um, and trust, right? Like there's, there's trust issues with that, but it can be effective. I mean, that's, you know, I, I wouldn't completely dismiss it. If, if the primary ethical concern is, are my students learning? That might be, you know, one solution a faculty member could take, right? Um, the other paths I've seen is that, um, and this is messier, but I've seen this done successfully, is that some faculty, including myself, are allowing for a hybrid approach, but the students need to show their work, show your labor. And, and so like, so what does that mean? That means they need to show, um, so there's some like, you know, browser extensions, I think Anna Mills on, 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 uh, on X, it feels strange saying X, but you know, on, on, on X, uh, we'll, we'll kind of use certain Chrome extensions to see. We are old, so we will, taste, we will say Twitter. <laughs> yeah. Okay. We'll say Twitter. Uh, she'll say like, Hey, you, you need, you know, as part of this course, you need to brought, you need to install this browser extension and I need to see the history of your documents. Right. And so which and so part of this browser extension will show if you're copying and pasting from another source. And so it'll kind of be clear, like, hey, like, hey, we're not going to, you know, you, you can use uh, LLMs, but you need to be uh, uh, clear on where you're using that as part of your writing process. And the, the majority of the labor needs to be yours, needs to be yeah, yours. And, and, and the proxy for this, what's measuring labor is the amount of time that is recorded in the the history of the document. So it's kind of an interesting proxy. It's an interesting way to, to like try to quantify labor. Um, there's certainly ways around it, uh, but that's that's a, that's another solution. For me, something I've noticed is that when students are trained, like when, when so so I developed using OER resources, which I've mentioned. When I developed, um. A so training can, module. can you say what OER is? Because I open education resources. Okay, so it's a set yeah. of uh, tools that you're participating in developing, right? So, like, so, uh, so OER is like um, there's this big movement in higher ed to develop um, OER textbooks, for example, that are free to to uh, distribute, to reuse, et cetera, et cetera. So it's like you know it's content that I've gotten partially from other faculty, but also content I've I've created for myself. Like formerly, I would just create a textbook. I would work with the publisher to get that to the students, uh, and then I'll get a kickback every time you know a student buys my book, right? So, but now the push with OER is like, no, hey, let's the interest. Of, uh, uh, it's the best interest in. Uh, 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 it's in the interest of our students' learning to get them resources 
at, at low or no cost and for other faculty for other faculty to be able to build on our efforts. So this is kind of part of the, this is like the open, open ethos, source. kind of like yeah, Wikipedia. Nice. Yeah, it's like Wikipedia, right? Mm -hmm. And so, I, so I've developed, um, along with uh, another faculty member at my institution, I've developed um, training modules around LLMs. And especially as they intersect with writing it, at, the, at, the, at the college level. So students understand how they work, their limitations, their benefits, how to acknowledge them, how to cite them. So we, so we have this training that we embed in within the course. And then we have open conversations around, um, you know, what they want to get out of the course, uh, what they what they feel like they need to learn. And then we we go through like, you know, some ways that this can be become part of their workflow uh, without inhibiting their learning. And then this exactly. is how and then and then building in expectations like, hey, this is we want to see that you've contributed contributed X amount of labor to the major to the final project or to the major projects. And we're finding that students um, are not trying to cheat the system if they feel like uh, they're learning something that's going to pay off in the workplace and they're also learning like they want they want to feel good about themselves becoming better writers. They Absolutely. care about that. No, I love yeah. it. It's it's Lisa Long, right? Your colleague. I Yes. Yeah, yeah, I watched I watched your video and I almost want to take that course because I I do AI research, but this is very different to develop these things and use them, and so people who try to ban it in the classroom basically creating the gap between education and workplace, right? And this has been sort of like the tradition, at least where I am coming from. Like ninety percent of what we learned at school was about something that ne you never use later and you could perhaps make a case that we were learning to learn and stuff like this but i don't think those things were the best suit suited for for that purpose either and so i don't know for the industrial uh, society we developed the sort of educational system where we put everybody in the same box and try to you know make them good workers in in a in the the uh, factory basically mm -hmm. and somehow this at least in 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 hungary where i came from like you know i my high school was in the 80s so that time it was really sort of like like building almost robots and then we got into information society and of course it was completely useless now of course no, I became a researcher, so I was on the top echelon of 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 of, of, of the students, and so we, we did pick up the skills to learn lifelong. And in any case, that was my sort of like my 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 prior predisposition. But that gap between school and life, sort mm -hmm. of, that just got bigger and bigger. Like my son, for example. Uh, He's really, really smart. He dropped out from of school and during COVID because he hated it and he went his on his own path. And there's nothing really developed for him other than everything <laughs> on internet, which he picks he's picking up, you know, history from YouTube and philosophy from YouTube, but it's not a formal tool. And so I really love what you're doing. You try to like channel into education all the latest things that are coming out of tech 
because I think that's the way to go, not only for students, but even for me, I'm 50 and I would really love to take your course how to use GPT because I'm just finding out by myself, you know. So, uh, so here I am, I'd like to congratulate you on it and I'm really interested in, you know, what's, uh, what, what, what are your, what is your experience with it? Like, uh, what are the actual ways that you use GPT in writing and what are the tools to teach those uses, which is not the same thing, right? So, so the, yeah, the, no, so, so the lesson, um, the OER that we developed, the open education resource that we developed does try to begin to introduce readers to like, hey, this is how you can think about, you know, what role it might play in your writing. Um, but, I, and I think you've interviewed a writer on, on your podcast, right? Yeah, and I, I think I caught parts of the conversation where, you know, something they mentioned, and I have seen this, is that working with some of these tools can actually create more labor yes, for the writer. that's my experience leads, too. It slows me down, yeah. Yeah, to, but it leads to different results, right? So um, it's, it's definitely in flux. This is something that a lot of a lot of educators are experiencing with, how to use these tools. Um, and, and I've seen, I've seen like, you know, a, a huge variety of things. Um, the most common use, and I think this is kind of a natural fit for educators, uh, because of how assessment works, um, in, in a first year writing course, but the most common use, I think early on, and it still is, you know, highly common is to use these tools to generate feedback. And then students will kind of use this feedback to, uh, to they'll they'll have to evaluate the feedback and that'll be part of the 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 peer review process right so before it would be like okay it's just a student who doesn't have a lot of experience with sophisticated writing or doesn't have a lot of experience with with leaving sophisticated feedback now they get the assistance of ai and and they need to evaluate that that um that generated feedback and then pass that along to um to the student to the student who wrote the who wrote the essay right and studies and there's research there's early research research that shows that actually ai assisted feedback is superior to uh non-assisted feedback right so this, the, there do seem to be results there um and so that could be part of the workflow it's so like what you, was the control the non-assisted feedback so the control the study uh was and i can send this to you afterwards but this is recently published the study showed that like there's um they the the control group um they were looking for whether or not students were were um uh um how, how they went from ai assisted feedback to uh to no to no assistance at all or to um partial assistance and then there i think there's a like a third there's like a third there's like a third i see group. i see so there is like a scale of uh, assistance okay yeah but and it so was what like they showed versus human yeah. assistance or versus no assistance no assistance so what I th mm. so the study looked at like okay after receiving um and i think the control group just re received no assistance right and so you so you get like you know overall quality of feedback um groups that had uh ai ai generated feedback first and then they would they would be able to say like oh this is good feedback i'm going to pass this along to the, the writer who wrote the essay or no i'm going to make some modifications to this before sending it along right that you know that would be how, how it would work and those you know that was kind of that was seen as superior work the feedbacks it was rated highly by by the writers who, who wrote their essays they really appreciate that feedback 
but then uh, later in the semester, when students um, uh, it, it, when students who formerly received AI assistance, when they received none at all, like no assistance at all, they actually perform worse than they otherwise would have, suggesting that they got used to uh, the AI assistance and they they were no longer able to perform. Uh, um, um, they, they perform actually below the threshold they would have otherwise, you know, without it's any like, assistance to begin with. Like atrophy. Like the, yeah, at, yeah, atrophy. Or or they just never, they weren't, they weren't um, compelled to make certain choices that would have mm -hmm. eventually led to certain habits, certain feedback habits. And so like, this is kind of an interesting dilemma is like, what choices do students need to learn? Do, do, what choices do students, students need to make? during a given assessment in order to um, uh, build in the certain kinds of learning that are important for the future success. I think that's really what's at, what's at stake. Like as, as an educator, what choices am, am I forcing them to make um, with or without AI assistance, right? Um, and so this, to me, this is really the heart of the issue is in the, as these technologies roll out, I have, I have young kids myself, Right, I've I've toddlers. Uh, I assume, but I I shouldn't. And this might be dialectical. There might be kind of a a pushback against this, and there's like a huge lockdown, and you know, in lower schools, so there's zero zero AI. I, I doubt that, but hey, it, it could happen. But um, as these school as these tools kind of permeate the the educational experience, and you know, let's say think about you know writing classrooms, uh, they they permeate what it, what writing means. In I think this can go two ways. Either we want to we want to make the choices similar or very analogous to how they are currently, right? So like yeah, you, know, you know every student needs to you know uh, learn how to practice you know syntax. Syntax meaning like the order of words in a sentence and order of phrases. You know. Um, they, you know, they, they, they need to learn how to make these specific choices around syntax. Um, or, and, you know, maybe, you know, five, 10 years down the road, we're going to say, you know what, um, we think that the choices are actually going to be more sophisticated than that. They're going to be at a higher level. And maybe we can, we can take, you know, uh, these, these former concerns around syntax, we can kind of take this for granted because we're just working at a higher level at this point. Right. Uh, and I don't know, to me, that's, that's, that's hard to um, envision, you know, without, without, kind of seeing where things go, but it might be that just the skills that the choices that, that students, the college yeah, students I make mean, in the future this is are really just bigger, hard, yeah. you know? Yeah. 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 It's a, reminds me, I mean, even like you know, driving with an automatic or driving with a stick, you know, do you drive with a stick? You learn it when you can, you know, you can buy an automatic shift car or do we teach people to read maps when you have Google map, but what if your phone is dead? <laughs> like so these are these are tough that's a great analogy choice. yeah yeah that's yeah, an interesting exactly. analogy because it's do you are, are your driving skills less because you no longer drive a stick or do you know you no longer drive manually right because you do you know less about like you're becoming less um um embedded within the rhythms of the car exactly. when you when you when you no longer use a manual right yeah that's why i like the stick <laughs> <laughs> yeah so like so so but it's become a matter of preference versus the default the default now is not to have a stick yeah 
in the US. Right. So will learning <laughs> in the future be like, okay, hey, you can, you know, you can practice these certain basics, but uh the default is actually going to be to to not have to deal with um those specifics anymore. Right? Yes. I, it, but I think the problem is going to be in the lower schools really where there are certain foundations that are critical for 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 basic thinking and 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 higher level thinking um and um you know these 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 personalized chatbot experiences are going to have to there's going to be huge guardrails that make sure students are are building those foundations and i think we we just don't know what those are right now exactly it's, it's, you know yeah like it, it's almost like the, the questions like what does it make us human what is this what is that we have to learn even when we are in like the cyber world where you're almost one with the machine <laughs> yeah yeah but it, but it certainly yeah. will be more dialogical this is kind of a reikian well, idea right i would imagine in some ways you might be able to um build into so like are you familiar with conmigo no. Have you heard of that? So the Conmigo is developed in collaboration with OpenAI. It's uh, but it's through Khan Academy. They've been they they worked on this um this chatbot experiences specifically to be rolled out within lower schools, um, elementary schools, that kind of stuff to help students with math, right? So and many schools many schools are developing these chat these kind of chatbot experiences, um, and so part of the fine tuning they had to do, and they're still trying to figure out is making sure that they don't help the students too much, right? Um, and so how can you, I mean, the, the, the dilemma is how do you make sure that the that the, the the experience is personalized? This, this you know, theoretically is supposed to be the huge payoff of, of uh, more sophisticated AI is that we can have personalized education, which has been, a, you know, the gold, kind of the gold standard for a long time. Um, uh, because if you can have high quality personalized education, it's going to be better than what students currently have yes. for most, not, you know, not, you know, we're not talking about Rousseau's tutors, right? We're talking about like what the average American student gets is going to, is currently worse than what uh, the gold standard of a personalized learning would look like, right? Yes, yes, yes. And there are so many tools like yeah. that were developed for games that put the, the player in a flow where he or she can improve the most in a in a setup where where we can be in in a learning state constantly not getting out of it because we are in flow but how to tune that it's i mean it's amazing uh, domain so if if we are optimistic this we probably go into the direction but it still doesn't answer to what are the basic skills we have to learn even when we have we have access to gpt yeah no i i i think it's uh because i don't think i don't think we can know that the answer to that in advance yeah it's almost like something that we just have yeah. to figure out like there's you know like in retrospect like oh that we went too far there or you know students are not prepared to do x but what they need to be prepared for what problems they need to solve is always kind of a shifting thing, right? I mean, that's that's part of um, as part of civilization, I guess. But the, so 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 the the example you said about um, um, 
what happens in games, like you went under flow state. So we are something that I am working on with um, the CTL Center for Teaching and Learning at my own institution as we're working, um, we're developing for next semester, in fact, we're, we're developing text-based adventure games that use GPTs to, it uses GPTs to, to run the text-based adventure game and to practice very basic rhetorical skills. Right. So it kind of it allows students like, hey, you know, instead of just saying like, you know, um, you know, after learning about, you know, logos, pathos and ethos, right, these 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 persuasive appeals, instead of instead of just writing, you know, these these rote uh, paragraphs in response to prompts that I give every semester. Um, instead, we're going to have GP, uh, we're going to have uh, uh, the GPT. We're going to create a script that has the GPT. Um, ask the student what adventure they want to take. Do you want to like, you know, are, are you, do you want to um, um, negotiate for a salary increase? Do you want to uh, ask your romantic partner, um, you know, uh, or do you want to try to get your romantic partner to go on this trip or something else, right? And then the, and then um, part of this process, part of the game is using different appeals. And and built into the the chatbot experience, or the the game is um, providing critical feedback. Like you know, it's, so so if, if the if the experience or if the the student's paragraph or dialogue with the the simulated you know partner or the simulated boss um, is not convincing according to certain criteria that we lay out within the within the within the within the fine tuning process, um, then they don't get what they want. Right, but but if it is convincing, then then they do get a bump, and they can actually push the adventure further. Right, it's so interesting, and and I also I see both the dangers and the opportunities there because, you know, somebody can take Chris Voss's negotiation book, which is gives you a lot of recipes what to do, and turn somebody into a sociopathic negotiator who will achieve everything they want. But at the same time, with almost with almost the same tools, actually, Chris Voss's book is very interesting because it teaches empathy, basically. You have to empathize with the person you're negotiating with to be able to achieve your goals. And I see it on my son who, who you know, he's, he's some, he had a, a sort of like Asperger-ish uh, setup, so he, 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 he but very smart. So he cognitively needed to learn the tools, but also empathizing with others, you know, what's going on behind the scenes. And he did it. And it's, it, it made him a better person. So it's not only that he can negotiate with people, but these negotiations are such that both of the people in the conversation leave the conversation happy. That's yeah. the that's the that's the most paradoxical idea for me in this, and so we could I could imagine these tools to, to go into that direction where, even like relationship. Conversational techniques, which, for example, you know, I don't know if you know, uh, Harville Hendricks, Harville and Helen Hendricks, they have this famous book from the eighties about uh, uh, couple therapy and tools for couples, how to converse. They have very strict algorithms, how to diffuse patterns and arguments in a very algorithmic way. And those could be completely 
you know, taught to a GPT and one GPT yeah. could be there just to teach you this, this kind of conversation and, and the, the world could be uh, so much a better place if we could do this, right? And, and I think the key here, yeah, um, yeah, absolutely. And I think because any of these things, like you, you mentioned algorithms, like a lot of these do revolve around, I mean, a lot of books do this. It's identifying principles and algorithms that can be, you know, can be used part of, um, uh, the uh, a, G, a custom GPT fine tuning process, right? It's like, hey, this is, or you can use RAG, right? Or retrieval. What is it? Um, retrieval augmented generation. Am I using yes. that? Is that right? Yeah. yeah so yeah. you can use RAG to kind of like ground the um, uh, the GPT, um, at least for that particular like scenario, to ground it with. Um, so it's aligned with you know certain things, so it doesn't go you know go off and and uh, default to its pre-training data, right? And I think that's part of like where we're at, um, it, it, at least my institution and others that are rolling out, um, you know these these customized chatbot experiences. Uh, I think like uh, so Ethan Malik at is he at Wharton? I think is really you know he does a, he does just incredible work around this area. But they have a number of customized like they have. They leverage, you know, G, you know, open AIs, APIs, but then they use other APIs to help with more customized experiences. And and I and I think, you know, part part of the benefit here is that you have more control over the alignment, right? It's like, oh, this is specifically like here's the alignment that we want, and you know, maybe we don't we don't want to rely entirely on on open AIs uh, API to do this. We need we need more control here, right? Um, uh yeah but i think and, and, and i think uh verbecki is big on this as well is like part of this process what's being called into question is the alignment with truth i think like this is becoming really integral to how institutions are responding to this new technology it's like it's raising um concerns about about our alignment to the truth more than it ever has before or at least exactly. you know recently you know so like how do we how do we make sure that students um, uh, how do we make sure how we deliver these tools in the classroom do not make students care less about the truth and, and you know, versus just truthiness, right? And, and part of that is going to be in, in the pedagogy, training students and how they work, but part of it is going to be in the more technical back end. Like, how do we align? How do we fine-tune and align these tools? Um so they're not just defaulting to what they've been pre-trained on and just spitting out, you know, they're dreaming, right? This is kind of like the hallucination problem. They're just dreaming, right? Yes. So how do we correct for that? Yeah. Yes, so that, that yeah, we can slowly move into to John Veraki's stuff because it's it's very, very relevant, right? Yeah. So he talks about alignment in that uh, video essay and um, it's, it's, I call it a third way because it's neither utopistic nor dystopistic about AI and one of the main points he makes is that forecasting predicting what's going to happen it's really really hard especially hard predict through what he calls threshold points where there is a fork we can make decisions there and the world goes this way if we make this decision and that way if we make that decision and so it's it's foolish to predict through that threshold points without actually making a statement of what we want to, to do there. And so at the end of the video essay, he arrives to a set of um, uh, threshold points where we will have to make decisions 
about what to do and one of them is for example embodiment so his main point is that uh, as you said right now ChatGPT doesn't care about the truth it's not that it's lying because for lying you have to know the truth and you have to want to deceive me on purpose whereas GPT doesn't know the truth there's no notion of of, of truth other than what's embedded in the text it learned but then the, the way it works, it's, it's stochastic. And so, of course, it's going to hallucinate. So for me, it's not even a surprising thing. Of course, it hallucinates. Every word it says, it's a hallucination that can be more or less aligned what we think is true. It depends on the topic. Because if a lot of texts are about the same thing and they all agree, then it's probably hallucinates less. But when we go to the edges of human knowledge, and ask about that, then it will just go on and generate words and will not tell you how sure it is about the, the, the veracity of that sentence. And so for me, it's almost like a feature, not a bug. If we get rid of this, they, be, they will become just uh, search engines, which we already have. So this hallucination problem is definitely embedded in current technology. And the way out of it in, in John's essay is that we need to create agents, AI inside, but they also have to be, have to have a body. They have to be embedded, embodied or AI, right, in reality, and they have to experience reality. So they get a stake in what they say. Because truth is basically, you can make a claim that truth is what makes you survive. You have to care about the truth, otherwise you would just die as an organism. So what was, uh, what was perhaps the, the most interesting point for you in that uh, essay or in, in any other stuff he does? How, how, how come you, you got stuck to it like I did? <laughs> was that the 4E and um, AI, something like that? It was... Was was it forty and uh, yeah? Was I mean, it was it the two thousand twelve? Um, so like I guess what so I I kind of like these kind of become blurred for me. Oh, the 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 YouTube talk that I linked to. Yeah, 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 yeah. So you you link you link the the video essay which is called uh, uh, AI: The Coming Thresholds and the Path We Must Take. So it's mm -hmm. about it's it's a program. That's why I like. It's a program, yeah. not a prediction. Uh, but then you also mentioned that you you watched some of the the videos of the awakening from the meaning crisis. So we can we can discuss sure. anything. Sure. Uh, yeah. Like. So I, yeah, and I would be curious to hear your. So I was reading your your Substack, and you have I I really appreciated your um you sharing kind of how you're digesting and thinking through some of these concepts and like uh yeah so it's fun I, I you know I love that we're talking about this. Um, and so, yeah, like, you know, for me, this is kind of like the, the later episodes of the meaning crisis where he, he kind of points to where things are going. Um, and he, he brings up things like, and I think this, this comes up more in, in after Socrates, maybe, uh, he's more, you know, where he kind of followed up, uh, this, this year with the meet in the meaning crisis series. Um, but he talks about things like opponent processing. I think that's the right. I think it's the phrase he uses. I, I find this especially salient. This is really important. You know, as an educator, this is something we think through quite a bit. Um, 
but this seems to be what he's getting at when he when he talks about like you know the importance of body body men is that we you know you get things you know the at the level of dialogue you get opponent processing but then at the, the level of embodiment you get you get error you know error um correction right it's like oh i expected this you know this is like relevance realization like here's my model of of what this room's what this room looks like but then like i run into um i run into uh the side of the door because it's glass but i thought it was a door but it's actually glass right so i get feedback there right <laughs> um and so i i, I think opponent uh, processing is is really important uh and i think i think useful for thinking about um some of the some of the hallucination problems that that we see and and you know like where where things might need to go to correct for those um where how can you build in tension how can you how can you feel uh, uh build in feedback mechanisms that that um i think at the user level right this is this is the trouble with with um uh teaching around chat is that students figure out very quickly that they can make the tool to, you know tell it whatever uh, tell them whatever they want right and so this is like the this is the weird thing you use these tools it, it there's truthiness to it. it 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 knows so much but then you you can make it say whatever you can make it agree with you and whatever you you can kind of very you can distort things very quickly right um and even if it's aligned you can jailbreak it and get it to do, to do things for you and say things that it wouldn't want in other ways um, so it's, how 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 do you if this is I think this is the concern with you know these LLMs mediating if if this becomes our primary form of dialogue right if if some people you know increasingly have virtual experiences you know where's the opponent where's the opponent processing uh, coming into play right that's critical yes, for yes, for truth yes. you know it's almost like you have to play your opponent there because there is nobody there like, yeah. I really like there are so yeah. many so many examples of opponent processing that I can actually pragmatically use in my life. So that's why I'm saying that what, what John is teaching is so important for me as a map. One of them is this, for example, what we do in this podcast is, which is, uh, I had to learn how to be with my thoughts and listen to you at the same time and sort mm -hmm. of like making it smooth. And I'm still a student of that, you know, it used to be that either I was just listening, which was very nice, but I felt like I was not heard, or I was giving a course, you know? Sure. And then I didn't listen to the feedback. So that that's, for example, for me, one of the examples where, we, where I have to learn to listen to my body. How do I feel when you speak, you know, and from those feelings, what comes out? The other yeah. example is the, you mentioned jujitsu in the beginning, so I wrote down how I got into martial arts very late in my life, like three years ago. And that's even more, there is no verbal communication there. So for sure, ChatGPT is useless. There may be robots in, I don't know, 50 years or something, but I, I wouldn't swear that it will arrive. So it's basically two humans and we fight. There are rules, of course, and what I learn, what I've been learning is that when you fight, you cannot only defend and you cannot only attack. In either case, you'll die or you will be beaten, you know, because if you just attack, you're not listening, you're not paying attention to what the other is doing. If you only react, then you basically give all the 
initiation initiating of the 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 collisions to the other and so at the end you you fear will take over and again you will be beaten so you have to get into this flow which is very much opponent processing in the sense that you 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 listen you act you listen you act sometimes you initiate you you listen to the response you react etc and a lot of martial arts is actually uh, teaching the basic elements of these dances mm. so that's what we are actually practicing procedurally in the second p of not only how to you move your muscle but also what what are the sequences in this dance so you can use it then in a situation when you have to improvise so it's almost like learning an instrument and then you can improvise as a jazz musician so so these are just a couple of examples where where you mentioned opponent processing which is one of john verbeck's uh, uh, terminology or i don't even know if it's his but uh, i know it from him yeah uh, this helps yeah it's kind of central to his to our thinking through um uh the meaning crisis certainly so one one of the biggest things that um that uh i would say i i, I get from his work and how what i find helpful for for thinking about how to present this technology to students and also like when i'm comparing Vervecki's approach to people like david deutsch i don't know if you're familiar with his work um, but also, like you see, you know, on 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 Twitter, there's the EACC, the Effective Accelerationist crowd, and the Techno Optimist, right? There's interesting things going on there um, that kind of freaks people out. Uh, but I think it, it's an example of some things that uh, are, are responses to the meaning crisis as this technology emerges. Is people like they're doing something and they're leveraging, I think, certain concepts to to try to to try to keep the momentum going, right? And so for Becky, you know, his idea of, of relevance realization is highly powerful here. I think that's like uh, the way he thinks about the role of attention and relevance realization as it relates to machine learning. Like he was writing about this in 2012 and then he's been updated since then. And in his recent talks, he seems like he's, you know, he's, he's deploying, uh, is it the four P's and the four E's? Um, uh, um, um, but embody so things like procedural learning, but also embodiment, right? I guess it's the four P's that he that he's focusing on in, in that particular episode. Um, but yeah, so pr procedural learning. Uh, he, he he's he's to me a lot of these are 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 um, are like his his uh, <laughs> the overarching one of the most important concepts is relevance realization because it it's it's. Um, it's kind of like the pivot point um, for everything else to come into play, right? Yeah, and right. so it's kind of an abstract, but like, uh, so let's think about like EACC, so effective accelerationism. They are, um, they're using, they're borrowing ideas from Jeremy England uh, mm -hmm. about thermodynamics. I don't know if you've heard of Jeremy England. He's like a, I think he's a, um, he was at MIT. I think now he lives in Israel, uh, but he, did interesting work around thermodynamics yeah life no how life started yeah yeah i know, I know. Yeah. yeah so like because you might you might be able to translate this better than me but my understanding is that like one of his central arguments um or kind of what he's known for is uh that that you know life emerges from you know the the 
um, or we see a lot of order as as heat dissipates. Heat dissipation, you know, which is very paradoxical for me. I remember this. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. I, I, I thought it was... So, so we are accelerating the, the heat death, basically. That's yeah. Yeah, this way, right? <laughs> Just sucking the entropy out of sun, building the yeah. structures. But yeah. this process is actually dissipating the energy into infrared, infrared faster than yeah. without life yeah so yeah something like that and so like well even like a sand dune for example can yeah. dissipate like that's like sand dune is is not you know quote unquote life and and as we normally think of it but it's increased order that dissipates heat right so it deflects you know it kind of more more efficiently dissipates the wind the energy from the wind and kind of you know it it expresses that the dissipation is expressed as increased order um and so the it's interesting how effective accelerationists Used, you know, the work of Jeremy England, um, and also uh, David um, Nick I didn't Land. Know that I didn't know that that was that was one of their foundational things. So they, it's acceleration yeah. is because they want to accelerate this, right? So this is yeah. So I, I I noticed this when I because so this is, so just to be clear, I'm not like in effect. <laughs> I don't see myself as EACC. I'm just interested. I, I I'm. I track what they do because uh -huh. a number of these folk are 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 what's driving the technology. Yes, so to me, yes, it's it's yes. relevant. It's like, hey, this yeah, is course, these yeah, are people doing yeah, the work. That's where where the tools that you have to adapt to will come from. Yeah, yeah, and so um, yeah, and so the 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 if there's a there's a Substack, I think um, I forget which one of the Twitter accounts created this, but there's a Substack devoted specifically to EACC. It was it was supposed to kind of birth the movement or is connected with the origin of the movement. There's only like two two articles and they both explain the principles and the, you know kind of the purpose of EACC. And so they they link to in the in the manifesto you call it kind of a manifesto um or, or one of the articles uh links to the work of Jeremy England. And they refer to thermodynamics quite a bit. In their kind of discourse, like they talk about GPUs, flops, all this stuff, and they're just they talk about their, but you know, for them, it's like expressing thermodynamics, um, and uh, and and there's a lot of I've seen discussion on this um, in Less Wrong, the the um, the 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 other EA like the EA crowd, right? And they're trying to they're they're responding to and trying to think through what's going on with the ACC, and they've they noticed that um, that um sorry I, I like lost my train of thought so the ea the ea crowd has written quite a bit about the eacc crowd and um oh gosh i lost i lost the I lost the thought yeah i, I follow a little bit the debate and yeah. i what i found the yeah. most interesting is that they sort of like the fundamentalist religious and atheist debate where i'm looking at this from an outside point of view, they have they share the framework where, mm. like for them, like God is a proposition. God exists is a proposition, basically, mm. which is for me it's not. And for 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 these these two crowds, the accelerationist and the, the doomist, it's the same thing for me. Is that basically, I don't agree with the framing, mm. and. They seem for them it seems to be even transparent that there is a framing. Mm. And for and this is where where John's work come in for me, because what mm. he says is that the framing is the thing, 
what you do within the frame that can be formalized you can have you know your bayesian probabilities and you can do calculus and you can well, even so ECC, so they're both bayesian right i, I don't know both bayesian but they they uh, basically live in this uh, world where it seems to me that you can decide what the goal is and then you you achieve the goal mm. which is of course true i mean it's not none of this is like uh, coming out of the blue it is true that we can as, as agents we can decide goals and we can achieve those goals but where those goals come from it's outside the system and if you if you if you start staying outside and looking in describing those goals then where are you standing you know that's Jonathan Pajot's big question you know when people describe the the universe as as we were not inside you know yeah and so and and so so that that leads to the alignment question where I think they would agree both of them that alignment is a question of roots so that would be for me. I, I, I be, so I, I will have to talk to people from, from those communities because I'm not completely sure that this is true. But it seems like both the community that wants to align AI today and the other community, which mainly doesn't care about that that much, agree that the alignment will be solved by imposing rules on AI. So that's what I call a framing. Whereas John says that, you know, try to do it with your kids. <laughs> before before we started to record, you, you mentioned that you have two small kids. Like, mm -hmm. you never know. It doesn't work. You cannot, you can impose rules to a certain extent to the kids. And it's in, it is an important developmental stage where they learn how to obey rules and look uh, and, and, and obey the authority and develop the mm -hmm. notion of an authority and trust. But this is only part of their psyche. There are so many other things going on there and this is not, you know, you can become a person like that and you get stuck in your life because, because you cannot get out of the, you know, as soon as the, the rule-based world around you collapses or you have to go outside, you, you, you don't have the the capacity to adapt okay yeah. so, so yeah because well john even thinks that 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 we should treat um um when they you know we give them give them opponent processing through through embeddedness right so that they need to have you know uh, something akin to bodies um and we should treat them as persons and so what's interesting uh, is that there's an uh, there is that david deutsch who is not he doesn't have the same framework as um as John Rebecca, uh, but he's famous for the for the, for the fabric of rea uh, the fabric of reality, the beginning of affinity. David George, I think he developed uh, quantum the idea of quantum computing. But he um, he also thinks that, or he says that anything that's that's uh, AGI, anything that uh, that has um, uh, intelligence like humans do, or the ability, or he calls it creativity. For him, that's kind of the key thing here: mm. the ability to generate new explanations. For him, that's kind of the the big thing. Like once we get to that point, then we have the AGI. He also thinks he's like anything that can create explanations is human. Is like that's mm. I mean that's that's what it is. And so like there's this interesting uh, 
um, overlap there between David Deutsch and how he thinks about AGI. And, and ah, I see, I know, see. I don't, I don't John, know his work. Yeah, I know his yeah, name. Yeah. But this but, uh, it's interesting. It depends again but, what, so, what you mean by explanation. Yeah. So, so the one thing I, want, I wanted to get back to that I think is uh, is important for, for, for Rebecca's idea of relevance realization. And the role that is playing in these companies that are developing this technology is um, so. So what I was, what I forgot, and then I just remembered as you were yes, talking, yes, yes. is the e the EA uh, EA crowd. Unless wrong, they're they're kind of they do their they've been you know writing about effective uh, accelerationism and and how to think through and respond to them. And um, they pointed out that, you know, uh, 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 like philosophically, epistemologically, it's not terribly sophisticated um, how they're developing their system, which makes sense. It's a manifesto, right? It's a movement. It's not like a, it's not like a, a philosophy, right? Um, so I think that's important to realize. And to me, this is the heart of relevance realization. They're creating a model that, that gets shit done, right? They're like, hey, we want to, we want to work fast what framework can we use to keep that energy going right mm -hmm. um and so this is this is their their idea of techno optimism that mark andreessen he published in manifesto but also the entire movement is kind of based on this but um but on less wrong they pointed out that 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 eacc is kind of based on collapsing that they're like okay the work of jeremy e. england shows that life emerges from the dissipation of heat right it's all about thermodynamics um, therefore, we ought to work on continually to uh, create more order and structure based on the dissipation of heat, right? So it's kind of like this, it's it's almost like a, uh, you know, from Hume, from David Hume, like a, like a philosophical fallacy. They're just saying like, oh, hey, this is, you know, like, this is how life is. We want to move. We want to, we want to continue that ordering effect, you know, by, and, and how we dissipate heat. Um, um but I, but you'll see that, like in the work of Sam Harris, he's been thinking through AI, and he also thinks that um, it's he's he's also fine. He's like, hey, this is you know we need to move, we need to get our off from the is, you know that's how that's how like the the world is ordered in certain ways, and and that tells us that gives us clues with how we ought to act, right? So like you know how this relates to to Rebecca is like for him this is like these these models um, or these manifestos are important to pay attention to because it's how this technology is being organized and taking shape. And I mm -hmm. think it helps make sense around, you know, how these, these, um, these communities, how they're, how they're, um, how the networks are taking shape, right? They're taking shape through these, these, um, through these, uh, these, I think he likes to use the, 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 the uh, kind of a translation of Neoplatonism, these kind of top-down models, these are the manifestos, and this is bringing order to, to the movement. Um, and then of course things tri trickle up, right? Like there's, there's going to be pushback, there's going to be complexities, you know, open AI, there's leadership crisis and all that stuff, but yeah. So that's, that's kind of what I'm, that my, that was probably a messy, um, mouthful of like EACC and, and Brevecki, but that's kind of how, that's why I'm, a, that's why I pay attention to when Mark Andreessen publishes a manifesto, a techno optimism, because it's, it's absolutely about relevance realization and bringing order to this momentum. Right. Yeah. And he has, because what, what John says that relevance is not uh, something you can have a theory about because it depends on, on you, the agent and the arena, which is your environment you are in. You can have a theory how we make sense 
and how we find the relevant information in a given situation. And that's what he's doing. So he has a sort of like framework about of how, how we realize relevance, how we find the salient features when we walk into a room or in a forest or in a certain situation before we do an inference. So this is where, for me, it was eye-opening that everything you do after that we can formalize, like Bayesian inference or statistics or, or logic or even arguments, it supposes that you already created the space in which you can state those things and that creation of that that uh, that space is what relevance realization is and so but so that that happens unconsciously doesn't that happen um i don't know if he makes this distinction but does that happen so so unconsciously we we we, we um he calls us the imaginal i think in some of his talks unconsciously we imagine the space around us, but then is there a conscious ordinate effect that happens through story stories and narrative? Is that also relevance realization? Because he's big on, um, we, we've probably seen the same talk, but he's, I think in conversations with Jonathan Pagel, he talks about this, right? Where where we have these stories that order the, um, uh, that order reality and provide like, uh, like, you know, people want to know where am I going before they, you know, like, hey, where, you know, like, you know, this is this is the kind of career I want before I go to college, or else I'm not going to have the motivation, and I'm not going to make sense of like I, I need to know that this credit I'm taking, that I'm paying X amount of money for, is meaningful, and uh, and and it's meaningful because it's it's relevant as it's tied to the the end goal, right? And so for him, this is um, at least this is this was I I thought you know I thought I was I thought this was like why he found um um uh was kind of interweaving relevance realization and neoplatonism because it's like you know we, we create these stories the symbolic framework and that allows us to put our lives together right yeah exactly so stories are are part of the symbolic world that's how we make sense of of uh, of the symbolic world which is basically for me what's above us it's not the things we can touch or do you know can you can argue about that so what he says about the, uh, the narrative, so he has another framework where opponent processing, of course, works, is which uh, he usually uses the computer game analogy to explain this. So there are three things you need to feel, to get into flow in a world. You have the nomological structure, which is basically physics, how things uh, work things fall, fly, bump into walls, and in a good computer game, those, those physical things, maybe it's not physical in the same sense as our physical world, like in Tetris, although they fall, but it's sort of abstract, but you know what's going to happen if, some, if you do something. So that's one thing. And the second thing <coughs> is that you need a goal, a normative goal. Tetris is really nice because it's sort of almost like an abstract game and it still sucks you in and gives you dopamine and everything. So you have a goal. You know exactly what you have to do to achieve. You don't know what to do, but you, 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 you have agency on certain things and you know what's going to happen and you know what's your goal, which is to you know pile up as much uh, bricks as you can. And the third one is the narrative. If the story of you, the hero, getting better and better and better, right? 
So you improve yourself and that's the third element. And then flow is of course the whole thing that gets, gets it together. You get into this state where you're always at the edge of your abilities. And that's the other thing computers game really managed to do is because you have these levels. So your level is always a little bit above your capacity. So that gives you a lot of incentives to stay there and do the and, mm. and play the game, right? And games simulate this. The problem with computer games, of course, that they suck you in. They give you all this dopamine, but they, you get out of the game and you are in the real reality where you know you have to earn money and you have a life. Okay, so he uses the games as to explain these three concepts, but at the end, the idea is that in a well-lived life, you have those three things. And this is where narratives play a goal. And this is how, you know, religion comes in, not necessarily a formal religion, but the kind of stories you create. Look, so for, for me, all these movements are about, look at them, like they all create a goal. They all create something difficult to achieve. They have their nominological structure, how the world works. And this is usually the, the, the issue with that is that it's always failing. You know, every theory is a theory. It's a beautiful order. It's a platonistic order, but at the edges, you know, you fail and you have to change the structure. So that's the issue with the nominological structure and within, but within that structure, you have the game. You want to accelerate whatever thermodynamics or whatever yeah. your goal is, right? And there is a community and in the community of your social standing, you, so you have your serotonin uh, thing if you yeah. climb high up in there. So they all have these features which, which are features of a well-lived life. But if it becomes too rigid, so this is where they fail, that they think that that's, that's the world. And this is, you know, theologies which are sort of, every theology has a dogma. Every has a, theology has a system, but at the end, you know, the now Platonistic religions that were developed like, you know, 2000 years ago, the ones that survive, they, they have, they are open. Okay, so there, you're, you don't have a strict value hierarchy other than you have God on the top, but God is exactly the thing that's undescribable. So you don't, you, you cannot make, cannot, cannot put them into words and into rules, and that's a feature of the system, the feature of the open system. So this mm -hmm. is where uh, I think his, his, his system gives a, a, a lot of, um, you know, almost like points you to, to hang on my experience, right? Mm. And so that's why I like him so much. And because it's, that, that, that particular essay I also like because most of the people who criticize the movements, either the accelerationist or the, mm -hmm. or the doomist, they just criticize, you know, they are negative. So your approach to GPT is not their approach. It's your, their approach to GPT is to, to, to try to regulate, which is also just another rule-based system, which will work to a certain extent. 
but uh, probably will not solve the situation. But his, his uh, proposal is pragmatic and constructive. Like he, 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 John really says, okay, when we get embodiment, this is what we do. Don't give it to the porn industry and the military because they will do it. They have the strong incentives. So let's do it differently. And probably that means exactly the opposite as the, the regulationist mm. group wants, which is close everything, put it into a rigid hierarchy. That's exactly how the military will get, get it, you know. The porn industry will work on the fringes illegally, probably. The military will be inside the hierarchy that regulates everything and they will develop the embodied AI. Whereas if we open it up, we have more chance to, to make it good. Okay. So in that sense, I'm allied with the, with the people who are for openness, right? We have to be careful, but on average, I would say it's better to fail being totally open than to, to try to put everything into a rigid hierarchy at this point. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and it's forcing um, it's forcing like bigger conversations about you know not only how to align these tools with um, <clears throat> incentives that that. Yeah, incentives that we care about, but also like you know things like truth, about you know like values, like we at a fun like we how do you how do you uh, how do you have alignment that is that is something that there's a lot of consensus around versus partisan. I think this is raising that question, and you know that's I think I, I don't see that going away. I don't I don't know how how I guess it's hard for me to imagine a model that that is not partisan to some extent, at least yeah. you know in the normal way we talk about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the actual. But it's something we have to care about, right? Like it's something that we should be attempting to do versus just like pretending that it's it's possible to have uh, a completely, you know, a completely um, agnostic in every sense, you know, um, uh, machine. Right? Yeah, we won't get agreement on this soon. So it's it's that's it. That's another argument against uh, regulation that it's really really hard to get something uh, through the political system that's meaningful. It, it, as you're talking, it's kind of I think something that um that it reminded me of is that like it it yeah, when these tools started to roll out, it seemed like there was a there was it was like there's there's like a renewed interest uh or kind of a renewed appreciation for the power of ideas to shape reality. I it, like I don't know if that's kind of a stretch, but it felt like that was kind of a that's kind of a vibe to some extent. It's like, oh wait, I can do things just by um, just by writing words into uh, 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 you know a little a little blank on my screen. Like I can do quite a bit, a lot more than I thought. And so I mean, yeah, like it's this is natural language processing. That's kind of like the the mediating um, technology there, right? So we're kind of hooking up NLP to these powerful um, these power powerful neural network ne- neural networks. And these neural networks are increasingly uh, linked to other tools that can do very powerful things. And I think, like, yeah, um, um, uh, you mentioned you mentioned Jonathan Pago. I know he talks about this, but I think Rebecca brings this up as well. Is there's going to be there's going to be a lot of interest in <laughs> um, um, 
you know, esotericism and hermeticism. I think there already was because, you know, post COVID you saw this kind of exploding, but I think um, there's, there's, this technology is kind of kind of an opening for that and it, it's going to be very messy right like it's going to be a competition of of stories about all those structures you were talking about in in kind of a very clear way um and so i'm kind of interesting to see that play out it's also kind of terrifying in some ways you like there's at the political level it plays out right in the united states hungary i'm sure there's there's uh it sounds like there's a, a version of that, that there as well um and so like yeah it's kind of like it it, it can um be i don't know, it can have certain like negative effects but it seems like there's there's in some ways going to be a, a an increase in an awareness of how stories are really important to to all of these projects right and it's going to be expressed at you know in the classroom but also in politics and all these other ways and it's not going to go anywhere like this is something we're going to have to deal with again and again yeah yeah he had one phrase which is, was really nice there which he said that the irony of the enlightenment is that the idea was to get rid of religion and be rational fact-based science-based right which is what happened was that we lost the tools the practices the rituals to connect to hmm. something bigger than us and now oh, from all this enlightenment uh, project what comes out is this monster ai hmm. which is bigger than us in many of the stories singularity or accelerationist it is something bigger than us and we don't have the tools to relate so people are going anywhere they can find tools you know chants rituals group things esoteric whatever these mm. pieces of the, the the grammatic puzzle that remains from the you know the destruction of the the uh, let's say classical religions that they can hang their desire mm -hmm. to connect to this bigger thing yeah. on yeah no this is key and i think this plays out in the class in the in the classroom as, as 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 well the lack of a shared symbolic framework the lack of a uh consensus around certain like values um is is leading to some of this confusion so like you know where where is this ai going uh how should we view the distinction between humans and machines all of that right like the different symbolic frameworks kind of like hang hang this in different ways like they kind of play around with these terms in different ways and so what it means to be human what it means to be machine um whether or not you can use terms like hallucinate or whether or not you need to like never whether or not you should be very very careful about anthropomorphizing what's going on right um this is because of the symbolic framework that's being used to think through what's these interactions right and um and like I see this in the classroom, I see this, you know, at, 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 at the institution that I'm at, where um, people are trying to think through, like, wait, where, what are our shared values, right? So yeah, we have a we have a college mission, a school mission, but I think in public public education more generally, like how how do we respond ethically to these tools uh, that 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 requires a certain like a certain kind of consensus around certain key values. Um, but right now, those are really hard to identify for some people. How to spell those out, what, what that looks like is really hard. And so you're getting, you know, just as we're getting this technology that's extremely powerful and, and seeming to, to create quite a bit of disruption, you're also getting a, a cynicism around public education. And I, again, like, I don't, I don't know how to think through this, you know, United States versus Europe. Um, um, 
and, and, and Hungary, but like the the uh, United States, there is kind of a rift right now between public education, private 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 education. We see that we saw this more recently. There's just increased cynicism around how you know quote unquote elite institutions are responding to current events, and so there's kind of fracturing in the public space. And education plays a key role in this, right? And so I think it's gonna it's going to you know so one of the questions I have is is this going to you know, uh, force bigger conversations around what our values are, hmm. um, or are, is that just going to be impossible? And we're just going to see more fracturing, hmm. and and uh, you'll have more, you know, these more um, these more tribal or local institutions or expressions of education, and they're going to have to figure out their yeah. share can their mini share consensus, right? Uh, so yeah, that's an open question for me, but it's it's seems important. Yes, so we are almost two hours in. <laughs> Time flies. So I think we covered most of the things I was thinking about covering. Uh, do you have any question to me that you would be interested in? Um, I guess the one thing, just looking at your background and um, how you're like, what you did before, what you've done before um, all this technology, like I think you were already giving talks on the machine learning um, within the workflows of like scientists, right? Mm -hmm. Back in 2018. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think in 2017 is when that famous like um, um, attention essay by the, by the, by Google employees, right? When, when that fame uh, attention Most is all you need, something like that. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, so it had come out just a year prior, and so it may not have been like may not have uh, affected a whole lot uh, by 2018. But you're like, so you're you're into this very early, and, and I, I guess I'm very interested in what you think someone like me, um, especially like I'm, so I'm a supervisor, kind of department chair, and 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 in a humanities discipline, right? And um, and I come at this from a very different angle. Like as you're talking, I can kind of see like your engineer side come across. Like you're very, uh, uh, very articulate and, and specific about certain processes. I love that. But I'm curious, like given your background, what you what you wish or what you think um, educators, especially with my background, should probably be aware of or what we might be missing, um, given what you know. Hmm. Thank you. Interesting question. I, I would point back to John. I think if his stuff is digested and applied, that, that would be really, really good. Because it gives you not only, you know, the structure, but also directions. The thing is that I'm also telling it to myself. Because I think his stuff resonates more with humanity people than with engineers because he comes from philosophy comes from social science cognitive science he's not an engineer or even though he worked a lot with uh, with uh, ai scientists on the engineering or research side uh, his language is uh, probably easier to understand for somebody with a with a philosophy background or psychology background than, than an engineer uh, so it's probably easier for you guys than for us to understand him. But, uh, but that's definitely where I would point to, to for guidance, how to, what, what to do with, with the technical stuff. Uh, the others, otherwise it's, um, 
I, I, I sort of empathize with um, your position where this thing just coming at you. With no, you have no agency of what, what, this, what the Silicon Valley guys will produce next time, you know, or very little. Maybe you can influence it through how to use their tools. And so their product development will take into consideration with the, how people use this. Uh, just yeah, you no, know, share, share yeah. your experience. So that's that's one of the things why mm. I'm I'm talking to you because I'm curious, but also because I think we should talk from the engineering side. We should talk a lot to people who start to use this, and I'm optimistic in the sense that yes, the religions are shattered and everything is sort of like in a in a state where you don't really have one big framework to believe in at the same time our value systems are pretty much aligned compared mm. to i don't know tribal history and so we do have uh, a shared value system within which we can function and in which we can which we can guide the development most yeah. of the time, the, the 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 bad things that come out of tech are not on purpose. So I'm really, I mean, you have always some bad guys, but most of the mm -hmm. time it's it's side effects that mm -hmm. can can backfire, not really the the original objective. So thinking with the the tech tech community about okay, we want the good, how to do the good is i think where you know in an ideal political landscape that's the discussion that 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 should take place now i'm not sure if it helps <laughs> no that's that's you're very optimistic about that i like that maybe it's maybe um the frame you should be like hey there's probably more consensus than we think we should yeah. we should lean into that right we should try to tease that out um, that's going to be more conducive than always focusing on, you know, where, where things are fracturing, right? Or we, we need to have that in mind as well. The, have you, um, last question, have you read Carter Ask? I'm not sure how, if I'm pronouncing it right, but Carter Askew's Solenoid, mm. that's the translation into English. It's a, um, I guess he's a, maybe he's a Romanian Romania, writer. it sounds Romanian, yeah. Yeah. So I, I, I wasn't sure if that was, uh, Science fiction? Yeah, it's it's a it's like it's it's very surreal. I think it was published within the last decade or so, but it was recently translated into English. Um, but yeah, it takes place in it takes place in I thought it took place in Budapest. Yeah, no Bucharest. Bucharest is maybe yeah. what I'm thinking of. Yeah, Bucharest. Um, but uh, yeah, it's a fascinating novel. So <laughs> okay, I'll, I'll check it out. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Thank you for the suggestion and thank you for uh, for the nice discussion. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, no, this uh, this was fun, Balaj. I, I I was I wasn't like I didn't really have any questions in advance. So I wasn't I was you know kind That's of uh, terrified. I wouldn't be wouldn't have like interesting responses. <laughs> but it's nice that we have like yeah, yeah. Verbecki and other kind of a common um, language that we can use. So yeah. I appreciate that. Yes, thank you very much. Bye, Joel. Bye, Lash. Bye.